our Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 19. Luke 19, I believe this is the last of the parables we want to look at uh, in Luke's gospel. We've, we've, we've gone through most of Matthew's and we'll go through most of Luke's. We highlighted one in Mark. Uh, we could have done one in John. John doesn't really have any parables, traditionally speaking, uh, but he has some metaphors, I think, that are parabolic, particularly in chapter 12. But uh, I, think, I think we've got a, a good feel of the parables, and I've enjoyed going through the parables myself. It's an interesting way to explore the, the teachings of Jesus. Elaine, I did the thing I told myself not to do. Will you exit out of this and load up my PowerPoint? I told myself, don't, don't forget to put your PowerPoint up there. But I should have done it while we were singing Calm Down Found. Uh, but while he does that, Luke chapter 19, let's read verses 11 to 27. So if you will, stand with me out of reference for God's word. If you can't find it, no big deal. Um, I'm just doubly fired. Um, the evangelist Luke writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, verse 11. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has, has made ten minas more. He said to him, Well done, good servants. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. The second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? He said to those who, who stood by, take the minna from him, give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, thank you for your love and your mercy. I thank you for, for tough texts uh, that, that call us to slowly to meditate and, and to look into Scripture so that we can apply it to our lives and understand you even better. Lord, we ask uh, this evening that you would open our hearts and our minds and our eyes and our ears, our mouth, our hands and our feet, uh, that we would take your word, rightly apply it, and be transformed by your gospel. Bring your spirit, and may I decrease so that you can increase. Name your son, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Let me see. Well, I don't know what your summers were like. But I can tell you what my summer vacation growing up in school was like, and they were awful. And the reason they were awful is for one very simple reason. Every kid wants to sleep in until 3, 4, 6 o'clock in the afternoon. They want to stay up till 3, 4, 6 o'clock in the morning, and that's it. That, 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 that's all they want to do, right? right? I know I'm, I'm exaggerating, right? What my parents would do is, is, is before they would leave for work, they would leave us a note. And on this note, it didn't say, we're so happy you are our children we pre-prepared lunch for you. Please enjoy 
your summer vacation. That's not what the letter said. The note said, get these chores done before we get home. And they were chores like doing the dishes. And we had a big dinner the night before. Vacuuming the entire house. Cleaning your room. Helping the laundry. Mowing the yard. Push mowing it, I would add. Cleaning the bathroom, etc., etc. And the rule was, whenever you do this, this is your business, but get all of this done before we come home. Now, 95% of the time, we knew exactly when mom and dad were coming home. But every once in a while, mom and dad got sick. Or mom and dad only worked a half a day. Or mom and dad just decided to come home and spank us, whatever it might be. So, so we had to make sure everything was done. And if they came home early and surprised us, that was not an excuse for us not to have everything done. And so we were given a task and we were expected to fulfill it while they were gone. And in many ways, that's exactly what these servants are asked to do. They are trusted with responsibility, engage in business. While I am gone, you're going to engage in business. But when I arrive, whenever I call for you, whenever I come back, I want to see that the job is done right. Well, the passage begins, uh, first of all, with a little bit of context. We see that in verse 11, yes, but really in the previous 10 verses. Now, by now, you, you, you should know that some parables have a clear setup or explanation, whereas others offer but a brief hint at a broad point Jesus is making. And so, for example, um, um, in, in Luke 18, right, we, we saw this last week, at the beginning, Jesus connects a bad theology of salvation with uh, a, a, a poor application of loving your neighbor, right? There are those who, who are self-righteous, therefore they have contempt for others. So let me give you a story illustrating precisely that. Here, Jesus tells us exactly what is going on. The first area of context is where Jesus is. If you've got subheadings in, in your Bible, you can probably tell that in the first 10 verses, Jesus is in the home of a wee little man that goes by the name of Zach. You know the story. I trust you. You're familiar with it. And now, now, Jesus, you may recall, he doesn't just go to Zacchaeus' home, but rather Zacchaeus, in addition to that, he invites all of his riff-raff friends, right? And, and they're all just terrible human beings, according to, to, to the culture of this time. Jesus is in the midst of, of these new converts and people willing to, to truly listen to Jesus, right? And, and, and one of the big issues here is about the kingdom of God. After all, he, he is redeeming Zacchaeus, sharing a meal with his friends. And during this meal, as we do at all meals, a conversation starts to take place. And a conversation that is a big, broad conversation happening on in Israel. And that's introduced to us in verse 11. And that hope is that the kingdom of God will soon arrive. It's very clear there, isn't it? And as they heard these things, Zacchaeus and his friends, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God would appear right now, right? So, so, so that's the context, right? Jesus is marching to Jerusalem, and, and here he stops to have a meal with Zacchaeus and his buddies, and, and everyone's starting to put the pieces together. Here's a guy we believe to be Messiah, and he's going to Jerusalem, and he's going to Jerusalem at the time of Passover, I trust you're familiar with Passover, right? What's the story of Passover? It's the story of how God sent a man to redeem and to liberate the people of Israel out of captivity and out of bondage. What's the context of first century Israel? 
They believe they're under the, the captivity and bondage of Rome, and they're waiting for this true and better Moses, the one that Moses directed them to in, in Deuteronomy 18, who would do exactly what Moses did. He would be a political leader who would liberate his people from the thumb of Rome. Well, this, of course, is a constant headache for Jesus. Why? Because what humans want is not a spiritual kingdom. What we want is a political kingdom. If you don't believe me, let me tell you, if you got time, tell you a story about the year 2020. It was a year of chaos. It was a year of pandemic. It was a year of politics. And I remember last February, March, when COVID was going around, I thought, oh, no, not in an election year. Right? Did you, did you have that thought? Like, could we not have done this two years ago? Right? Not in an election year. It's bad enough the entire world is shut down and we're all going to die. Now we've got to die in an election year? Why? Because we still believe and we put our hope and trust in a political system and a physical kingdom thinking if only we can just get the right people in, if only we can, we can pass the right legislation, then we'll have utopia. What Jesus dealt with this in John chapter 6, perceiving, this after he feeds the 5,000, perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Rather than choosing a kingdom, he chooses isolation. In Mark chapter 10, and James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him as a teacher. We want you to do whatever we ask of you, right? If, if you've been around kids long enough, you know that if a child comes up and says, Mom, Dad, teacher, whatever... I need to ask you something, but I need you to agree to what it is to request I'm going to make, right? You know, right then and there, you don't agree to nothing, right? So that's what these teenage boys do. Teacher, we want you to do for us what we ask of you. And, and, and this is their question. Grant to us one at your right and one at your left in your glory. What do they think, right? The kingdom is here. It's coming. And we want to be ready for it, right? We want seats of prominence. Acts 1.6, right? Jesus is about to ascend into heaven. He's been risen from the dead. When they had come together in the upper room, right? It wasn't that, that many, about 120 people, if I recall correctly. They asked him, Lord, will you now restore for us your kingdom? And Jesus like, were you guys not impressed with the whole coming back from the dead thing? I mean, can we just pause and marvel at the fact I am still alive, right? I mean, that's kind of like cool, right? Uh, and they're like, yeah, yeah, that's awesome. But about this kingdom thing, right? Can, can we get, get to that? This has been a constant headache for Jesus. Why? Because it is difficult for people, including people of faith, to hope for and to long for a spiritual kingdom. Jesus did not come to sit upon a throne. He came to be nailed upon a cross. His cross is the means by which his kingdom comes. And so Jesus is marching to Jerusalem, not to sit upon that throne, but by the cross, he will firmly establish his kingdom. So if you want to change the world, don't wait for the next election, but be engaged on the mission of God. So that's the context. We begin in verses 12 through 15, the charge, right? And then there's some debate regarding what's happened here in, in verse 12. You see there, he said, therefore a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Now, most agree, however, and I think this is likely right, that Jesus is hinting at that he will be gone for a period of time, likely a long period of time. And that is that there will be a period between his first and second coming. This seems obvious to us, right? Because it's the year 2021 and not the year 21, right? We, we, we recognize this. This is, 
it makes sense to us. But at this time, most Jews couldn't fathom the, the, a first and second coming. They assumed that all the promises of the prophets would be geared in a single coming of the Messiah. And Jesus seems to be hinting at this. By the way, this ain't the only place Jesus hint at this. Uh, Matthew 25, 19. Uh, this is one of his parables, I believe. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts. But notice, after a long time, he came and did these things, right? In Matthew 24, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, then the end will come, right? After all these other things happen, then, then we can do this. In 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul says, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by spirit or spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until, right, the rebellion happens, all that sort of stuff. So, so you say, look, some people may tell you it's already happened. No, 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 there, there is a gap here. Revelation does the same thing if we had time to look at it, as does Second Peter. Remember, Second Peter says the days will be like they were in the days of Noah. Everyone's like, hey, you, tell him, you told me he's going to show up. He's a little late, right? So, so the Bible is clear that there is this gap between the first and second coming, and even Jesus is talking about it. However, notice in verse 13, the nobleman, he's not king yet, the nobleman calls together 10 servants. Now, we, we're only going to meet three later on, but there's 10 servants. He, he passes out 10 minas. Uh, that is, each servant gets one mina, right? Now, a mina is worth 100 drachmas. Now that you know what it is, we can move on, right? No, so, so a mina is worth 100 drachmas. Uh, uh, a drachma was worth a day's wage. Now, what do you have here is... Each servant is given about three months' wage. Now, that would be nice to have, wouldn't it? I don't know if I want it in a single coin, right? You lose that coin, you're thinking, we ain't eating for three months. <laughs> you know, don't tell the light people that I ain't paying for three months. But in, the, in a single mina, they have about three months of, of wages that they were then to engage in business, make proper investments, and then increase the, the wealth as a result of their, their investments. Now, let me just add here, just a little footnote. That this is uh, one of the great things that the modern world has proven definitively, even though it seems like half the country doesn't seem to understand this. And that is that wealth is something you can create. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. Wealth is something you can create. Can I prove it to you? Look at an old picture of New York, let's say from 1776. And then look at a picture of New York in May 2nd, 2021. It's a little different. New York was one of the largest cities even in, in the 18th century. It is the still largest city in America in the 21st century. Yet, let's be honest, it's a lot bigger. And you got to ask yourself, how does that happen? It happens whenever wealth is created. So what Jesus is asking these servants to do is, here is an investment you make wise decisions, and I'm trusting you with it, that what I want is this initial investment to grow. That's the way all investments, that's, that's the point, is, is to grow those investments. Um, and so he's going to be gone for a while. This is their, their job, to invest and to grow his business. Well, so he goes off, and we get a hint at what his life is like seeking to get his throne. Verse 14, but his citizens, notice these aren't the servants. So there's three characters. There's the nobleman slash king. There's the servants and there's the citizens. The citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. However, he still got his kingdom. Now, notice here, these are separate characters, and they're not happy. 
They hate the king. They hate the nobleman. And I can't help but wonder, how is it have they demonstrated uh, their dissatisfaction with the nobleman? I have no doubt they have rioted in the streets, peacefully burned cities down. I'm sure they have petitioned everyone they can petition. I'm sure they've called for a vote of no confidence. I'm sure they, they've spread false rumors and conspiracies on both social media and, and 24 hours news cycles. And I'm sure those false rumors and conspiracies were repeated over and over and over again, not because the news guy says it's true, but because it sells. And so while he's saying it's not true, he's acting like it's true, which makes people think that it's true. And then they're wondering why is it everyone thinks it's true? Sorry, I, I uh, during COVID watched too much of the news while I was at my parents. You have to forgive me. I, I, uh, I'm still, still trying to recover from some of that. Well, I don't know what they did to, to, to try to keep him from getting his throne, but he gets it nonetheless. And so, so he, he takes his, his throne. He is crowned king. Now, most scholars agree, and I think this is likely right, what Jesus is describing here is the cross. Jesus goes to get his kingdom. And what does he get? He gets opposition. And it's a very severe opposition and this opposition leads to the cross. Yet their efforts don't prevent the kingdom. And they are the means by which he takes up his kingdom. Despite the injustice and violence, Jesus receives a crown from the Father upon his resurrection and ascension. Where he sits at the right hand throne of the Father. All authority, Jesus says, remember Matthew, has been given unto me. That is a post-resurrection proclamation. So what does he do at the end of verse 15? He, he's, he's got his, his, his throne. He calls all these servants together. These aren't the citizens. He calls the servants together. He says, all right, let's see what you've been doing all this time with my money. So that leads from the charge to the collection. Now, although 10 servants are given a mina, only three are specifically mentioned in the collection of the investments. This is, this is, Jesus does this elsewhere in my favorite parable, Matthew 20, where everyone get, gets paid the same in the end. Um, there are multiple servants, but he really breaks them down into two categories. This is for the sake of simplicity to short the story. Now, the difference between the servants is not how much they receive. They all receive the same. The difference is not talent or skill. The difference is faithfulness. We meet the first servant in verses 16 and 17. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. He said to him, well done, good servant, because you've been faithful and very little. You will have authority over 10 cities. So he has one mina, turns it into 10 mina. That is a really good return on any investment. Let's say you put $100 into the stock market, and by the time you sell, it's worth $1,000. That's pretty good. That is pretty good, right? That, that's, that is a good investment. This guy made some very wise decisions. No doubt watches a lot of CNBC. Now, the language that the nobleman or king gives this first servant is not an accident. Notice what he says there. Well done, good servant. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. Jesus will use the same language in another parable regarding judgment day. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master, Matthew chapter 25. Same language. Clearly, Jesus wants us to see a connection with judgment day. So the nobleman turned king is pleased with his servant's faithfulness, and he is now initially trusted with very little, three months' wage, is now trusted with ten entire cities. The second servant comes, verse 18, it's essentially the same thing. His one mina is turned into five minas. Now, again, that is a good, good return. If you invest $100, you get back $500. That's pretty good. 
right? If you invest $1, you get back $5, you're pretty happy, right? This is pretty good. It's not as good as the other, but I ain't going to complain, right? He grew wealth. He created wealth. And so what is it that that the uh, king says in verse uh, 19? Uh, you will be over five cities. It's assumed the same thing. Well done, good servant. I will trust you and put you over five cities. And then we meet this third servant. What are we going to do with him? This third servant. Notice start in verse 20. Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you. You are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. Now, I think there's a lot here, and I think we could really chase some rabbits here, and I don't want to do that. Let us just, just look at, at, at the basics here. This servant is a real piece of work. He is foolish. He is lazy. And you'll notice how similar he is to the citizens. The citizens despise the nobleman and try to stop his kingdom from coming. This guy is a fool and fears him and so does the bare minimum and not even that. He is foolish. He is lazy. And instead of investing the minus, even if you put it in the savings account and you got a uh, 0.001% return, right? You ever get your savings account numbers and you're like, I want to brag, babe. We got three extra cents this month. <laughs> you know, I tell you what, if this thing works out for another 80 years, we could finally get that ice cream at McDonald's, right? I mean, I, I, it's a joke. So if you're a banker, if any banker's watching this, it's a joke. We do that occasionally. That's why we were voted number one in Frankfurt, in places of worship, right? They were number one because we make banker jokes, okay? But he at least could have done that. I mean, if, if your $100 turned into $102, it's $2 you didn't have before. That's something. He could have at least done that. No, what does he do? He, he finds his, his deceased grandfather's old handkerchief that's still on the wash. He puts it in there, finds a sock drawer. He hides it in the back, thinking when he shows up, I'll just give it back to him because he ain't worth my time. I love how Mr. Beck summarized this. He said that this servant wrapped the minus in a sweat cloth, but he was unwilling to sweat. I love that. And so, rightly so, the, the king condemns this lazy servant. Again, all he had to do was put it in a savings account, put it in a CD, put it, put, it, put it in something, and he couldn't even do that. And so he has some very strong language for the man. And you see it there in 22 to, to 25. He takes it and gives it to the first servant. Let us finally look at the conclusion, verse 26 and 27. Here is a fun passage that you probably didn't discuss in Sunday school when you were a child. I tell you that to everyone who has, this is the application, by the way, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, the citizens, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Now in the parable, both the citizens who reject his lordship and at least one of the servants confess that the king is severe. If Jesus is the nobleman king presented here, then what we have from Jesus' own lips should be a warning to all of us. Here is where we must realize that we have a tendency to read the Bible as Americans, not as Christians. Because we read this, we think, oh no, that can't be Jesus. Because my Jesus would never do this. 
We've bought into an effeminate Jesus that is meek and mild and cuddly and kind. He's my co-pilot because I'm too important to give him the full job. That's not the Jesus you have here. This is not Jesus meek and mild. This is Jesus mean and wild. Let's be honest. This passage here will not sell books. It will not get you on Oprah. It will not get you a big audience on TV. But it is the word of God. This is a warning to all of us. Notice, first of all, verse 26, the king takes. Having been unfaithful with a little, it is given to those in the kingdom who were faithful. Now, this is the big idea. Faithfulness. This, of course, describes um, the third servant's minus being given to the first servant, obviously. Now, think about it. If you hired someone to do one thing, doesn't matter what that one thing is. You come up with your own scenario. If you hired them to do one thing, you had one job. And they failed to do that one job, like run the soundboard, right? Which is okay because we're voted number one in Frankfurt places of worship. So it's okay. I mean, imagine how bad those soundboards are. I mean, come on. I'm sorry. I am a little excited about it. But if they failed to do that one job, you'd fire them and then give that responsibility to someone else who's more competent. You tell me, is Jesus doing anything more than that? Okay, think of a different scenario. What if it's your money you're wanting to have invested? Ah, it's a little different now. You're more than willing to, to spend someone else's money, right? I have no problem spending your money, right? Uh, that's why I stay away from it at the church, by which we were voted number one in places of worship. But if all they did, you're an investment banker, you're your investment advisor, I've given you my life savings for the point of investments, and you went and you buried it in your backyard that I could have done myself. You're going to fire them. And you're going to take that investment, you're going to take it away from them, and you're going to give it to someone who can do the job you asked them to do. It's your money. I think we all understand this. Not only does the king take in verse 26, but the king executes in verse 27. What a harsh imagery this is. We read this and we think, are you sure this is Jesus? Are you sure this is really him? Now, to do the original hearers, this is what every king would do. If you pick a side, you need your side to win. I've been reading a lot about the founding fathers. Uh, last year, then COVID, read about John Adams, who's, who's really probably my favorite founding father. Reading right now about Alexander Hamilton. And one of the things that you may recall is, is that when they signed the Declaration of Independence, one of the great lines, maybe Ben Franklin or someone else, you don't know either, um, is, is says, men, we will all either hang separately or we will hang together. If we lose this war, we're all going to die, right? They've chosen a side. Winning means living. Losing means dying. And that was typical in, in the monarchical world. I think, again, Alistair Beck so helpful here. He says, in this parable, has all the flavor of heaven and all the essence of hell. You can't miss, in this parable, there is an emphasis on judgment day. Well done, good servant. You will be asked to rule over these cities. You will be given greater responsibility. You were trusted with a little. Now here is more. But then there is the other side of Judgment Day. There are the goats who are there. And, and, and the language is, you rejected me. You sought my, 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 my rejection. You sought my death. 
Here is judgment. Here is in the picture of slaughtering them before the king himself. There it will be a, a, a condemnation and eternal hell. So none of this should be surprising. This is exactly what the Bible teaches. But what's the point of the parable? What is Jesus trying to get at? Two things worth highlighting here. The first is patience. Patience. Jesus' original audience presumed the kingdom of God was near. Jesus was marching to Jerusalem. You go back to verse 11 to see this. He's marching to, to Jerusalem to take a throne for himself. And what's the message Jesus is saying? He's no, y'all going to have to wait a long time. A long time. It's an indefinite period of time. He is physically absent for a while. It is the hope of every believer, right? For Christ to establish his kingdom. I hope that is your greatest hope. That Christ would establish his kingdom. And the mystery of that kingdom, as we've talked about recently on Sundays and Wednesdays, is that the kingdom of God is here now, yet it's not here yet. It is both. So the kingdom of God is among you, Jesus would say. At the same time, Jesus is saying the kingdom of God, it'll get here. It'll be ultimately fulfilled. So for now, what we do is we wait with anticipation. The kingdom is here, but not final. And the day will come when this broken, fallen world will be transformed and Christ will rule and reign over a new heavens, a new earth, and a new Jerusalem. Man, I hope you long for that day. You are eager for that day. And one of the things I think that that will demonstrate you growing in intimacy with Christ is you increasingly long for that day more than anything else on your personal calendar. You know, I'd really like to see out the the end of this soccer season. I've really enjoyed coaching these boys. But man, I'm okay if if Jesus comes back before we get to finally play Owen County and beat him. Right? I really want to see that, but I really want Jesus to come back. In 80 years, when I finally allow my, my daughter to, to get married and I perform that wedding and have a long talk with her would-be groom, I look forward to that day. Man, I, I want Jesus here now, at least before the next election, right? Don't you? That'll preach. That is why we are number one in Frankfurt. I just love that. that. You have no idea. I mean, it's probably spam. Okay, I'll send it to staff and say, it's probably spam. But hey, you take whatever you can get over the last 13, 14 months. The second point he makes here is faithfulness. What matters most in the kingdom of God is faithfulness to the king. While the king is gone, what are you doing right now? What are you doing now? Far too many Christians are like that third servant than the rest. Entrusted with the gospel, we keep it to ourselves. What is it that that, that we we sang as kids? This little light of mine. Do we let it shine? Do we hide it under that bushel? Do we let Satan blow it out? How then do we prove unfaithful in this period of of waiting? I've got three areas here that are worth considering. This is how we prove to be unfaithful. We don't want to do these things. Number one, we refuse to share the gospel. For far too long, the average believer has relied on cultural acceptance and public events to reach others for Christ. Let's think about it. It is safer if we do nothing and they still come to church, right? Wasn't that nice? Do you remember those days? Man, you have two revivals. 
where some guy you overpay does all the work for you. All you have to do is one day during the week or two of revival or three days because, you know, it's, it's, it's in the modern world, so it stops at Wednesday. And then all you have to do is take the preacher out to dinner one of those days, right, so the kids don't eat, so you can pay for him. He's always overweight because all he does is revivals, and he gets fed like this uh, every week. And, and this alone is what's going to draw people to Christ. And it works. It was nice. You didn't have to do nothing but feed the preacher. You didn't have to do nothing but, but to show up. Man, that was nice. Now what we want to do is we want to trust evangelism to large uh, corporate events. I will come and support, but the whole event is evangelistic. Right? And there's nothing wrong with revivals or, or events. I, I, I believe in those. But the problem is, is what we've done is we've distanced ourselves from the commandments of God to tell other people about Jesus. Now, we're more than willing to tell other people about our favorite politician who just might run next time. Aren't you excited? I've been watching this guy for years. I'm like, that would be a good president. Now he's going to run, right? We're more than willing to share those. We're more willing to, 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 do, to do everything through social media, thinking that'll change the world. But heaven forbid, we tell our coworker over lunch, who we claim to love dearly, here is Jesus. Here's the king. And he's coming. He's coming. We will be held accounts. If we want to reach America, Christians are going to have to engage in the business, to use the language of the parable, of evangelism. We too often fear sharing the gospel with our neighbors. But wouldn't hesitate to share personal family triumphs with the same souls. What does that say about us? The second way we fail to be faithful is that we is a failure to live consistently with the gospel. We don't share it and we don't live consistently with it. Perhaps nothing has, has damaged Christianity more than rampant hypocrisy. Revelations of sexual abuse in our churches, extortion and shady financial dealings, conspiratorial preaching and hypocritical preaching has ran rampant for decades in our churches. How many of our pulpits will condemn abortion but will not address racism, abuse, injustice, or hypocrisy in our own midst? Now, I'm all for condemning abortion. It's terrible. But there's these other issues that we don't deal with. Why is so many of our churches unwilling to say hi to strangers in, in, in the pew next to us? We'll pound the pulpit and we'll condemn those people when revival needs to start with the household of God. But it isn't just the public issues we, we, we can think of. At the local, more private level, we fail to adequately love each other, let alone our neighbors and strangers. We fail to live with joy and hope that the gospel will, will provide for us. This is one of the things I know we, we got a late start, and I think that's good because there was a lot of laughter and joy. That's one of the things I love about this church is, is there's a clear demonstration of happiness that we're saved. There's a novelty. It's hard to let the gospel shine. We darken it with unrepentant sin. Third way we fail to be faithful is we're poorly discipled in the gospel. There's a quote in a Lincoln biography. It's a spiritual biography of Lincoln, and there's, there's a lot of debate about his spirituality. It's not worth our debate. So I'm not going to get it exactly right. But it's something like, in Lincoln's time, very few people went to church. And the reason was, particularly as, as, as you were coming into Kentucky and Indiana, Lincoln born in Kentucky, finds his way into Indiana and Illinois and all that. You live in a pioneer place where there are no churches within walking distance. You're not going to get into Maserati and just show up to church and show how, how God has blessed you, right? You can't do that. And so you didn't go to church. There wasn't a church anywhere around. This is why you have churches every 20 feet in Kentucky right now, right? Because you didn't drive the church back in the day. You had to walk or take a horse or something like that. So they had to be closer together with each other. So Lincoln was someone who didn't grow up going to church, but he knew his Bible inside and out. What's the situation now? 
There are churches in every corner in the South. Very few people know their Bible. What's happened? Issues discipleship. Our churches and the members of our churches have failed to take discipleship seriously. When I was growing up, discipleship was a program on the calendar. Every Sunday evening at 5.15, worship was at 6, 5.15, you have discipleship training. See, it's, it's in the bulletin, therefore we're doing discipleship. But heaven forbid, we who are spiritual invest in people in our church, invest in people of our lives to disciple them one-on-one. Or to grow as disciples ourselves, to take seriously the spiritual disciplines and other stuff. You see, ultimately, this parable is a word of encouragement. And I hope you see the encouragement here. And the encouragement is, the king is coming. Isn't that good news? The king's coming. A little more important than president. A little more important than, than some speech. A little more important than, than anything else we may think of. The king is coming. And I long for the day he comes. Man, I hope I'm, I'm here the day he shows up and lays the smack down. I'm thinking, finally, someone's getting something done around here. Yay, Jesus, he's coming. But it's a warning. We've got work to do. And unfaithful laziness will not be tolerated by the king. When we stand on judgment day, what will the king say to us? Well done, good servants. Or as he did here, you wicked servants. All that you were given will be taken away. Let's pray. Our Father, I ask that you.